Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and this week I'm looking for the best spy book. To help me are two high school English teachers, I think. <laughs> That's, uh, that is my cover as a high school English Your teacher. Alias. Hello, Nick. Hello, Ian. I am ostensibly a high school English teacher. My name, as far as you know, is Joe mm. Holshue. And this week, I am not going to tell you about the book I read about because it's a secret. No, it's not. It's not a secret. <laughs> I, re- I read a book called Blood of Victory by a guy named Alan First. And Nick, if you're looking for a sneaky spy book, Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's a pretty sneaky book. This one could do it. Mm-hmm. Sneaks up on you. Vigates mm-hmm. Yosef Privyat Nikolai. My real oh. name is classified, but you can call me a Rolling Stone. The intelligence I brought you this week is my analysis of the Jean Le Carré file, the spy who came in from the cold. And to quote uh, a Hobbit fact, to quote Gandalf, keep it secret and uh, do please keep it safe. Oh, thanks, Gandalf. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely (laughs) enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. (laughs) Who who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. I mean, talk about code names. Gandalf had a bunch of different code names. That mm. was weird in the. That was the weird. Books? Yeah, in the books well, and the movies. I'm just like, what the fuck are they talking about? He's I think, gray now. Okay, so, He's so white. I feel like part of the deal is that Tolkien really was trying to cosplay Norse mythologies and 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 mythology as much as he could. So various various figures in in mythology kind of show up in across different cultures mm-hmm. with different names. A good example of this is um, Odin. The All Father, Wotan, played by Anthony Hopkins in the Marvel movie. Um, <laughs> his deal is he's never like it's not like everyone refers to him as right. Odin. Like right. One group, some people one just group, call him Anthony Hopkins. One group refers to him as Anthony Hopkins. One right. group refers to him as the All Father. One group refers to him as um, the Raven Dude with their two ravens. Mm-hmm. One group refers to him as Mister Wednesday. So the point is, I What's think the point the, Ian Gandalf gets a bunch of different code names. In an attempt to kind of mimic how these mythical figures sure. end up uh, having a variety of different sobriquets. I think it's cool that Gandalf has all those different names because it's like the elves have a name for Gandalf because they met Gandalf 20,000 years ago when yeah. he wandered yeah. and met the elves. Yeah. And then the hobbits have a different name for Gandalf because they met him under different circumstances. And I, he I smokes saw very pipes cool. with them. He smokes pipes with them and does fireworks in the movies. Gentlemen, spy books, this feels familiar. Have we done this before or have we just done lots of James Bond books before? I don't even know if we've done lots of James Bond books. I think we've read, I think we had one James Bond episode, right? Oh, we did the Sean Connery week too. We accidentally had James Bond episode where um, we were planning on doing gold, but it just ended up being Bond. Right. Uh, That's okay. yeah. That was a good theme. Um, but yes, Sean Connery is is um, more like more or less the man himself. Mm-hmm. So, despite that book being entirely about Scotland, did I say my piece last week about how some people say James Bond isn't isn't a spy movie? It's or isn't spy movies? It's action. Those people seem difficult to be around. <laughs> <laughs> Real fun of parties. Well, actually, um, well, we didn't come up with this theme, did we? This we is not, a no. little head recommendation. Week. This is foisted upon us. An old friend of mine, Thomas Barnes, um, who was one of the first to say, no, the Star Wars prequels are not very good. You don't have to. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. He told me you don't have to like them just because they're Star Wars. And that was honestly really freeing. So mm. thank you. Thank you for that. He's uh, he's he's very well read. He used to play bass in a band and he gave me my first guitar. Those things seem unrelated. This, is, <laughs> this guy's all Are over you just the listing place. as many things as possible that you remember? He's great. He's a great guy. And, and, and Drew, if you're listening, um, I miss you. And, and I'm glad we're I'm glad we get to do this episode. One time you wore a red shirt. Some people know him as a Star Wars guy. Some people know him as a bass guitar guy. Some people know him There's as a spy the book connection. guy. Spy books. Are there good spy books? I think I'm not. Nah, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Guys, I have a uh, very exciting news for you. No, nobody's cracked the code yet. Nick. <laughs> I have very exciting news for you, and I, I want to share uh, a new segment name. Okay. Just the name. Just the Not name. The I came up segment. with it. He's I don't have it. the follow through to actually do this segment, but I want to share what I think might be the great, the greatest segment name to ever broach this show. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you ready? We'll be the judge of that. But yes. Okay. I'm and so again, excited. this is on the table for either one of you. If you want to run with it and okay. put in the work, it's you can have it, but I'm okay. not going to do I'm not going to do the work. Yeah. OK. OK. All right. So as you know, on this show, we've discussed people writing from prison before. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. People works, books. Uh, book works. Yeah. Uh, people mm-hmm. who have written books from the prison cell. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Luther King. Yep. I think we've talked yep. about others. I don't remember. <laughs> the rest. The, I don't remember the others. Yeah, the, the, uh, the rest. Sure. <laughs> I don't remember those either. Ian, Ian had that prison book that the guy texted out in WhatsApp. Yeah. Oh yeah, the yeah. texting one. No, don't remember that. that. I yeah. think he was from Russia. Nope. Mm. Uh, Iran. It doesn't Iran? Well, it does. It does matter. Anyway, no, go ahead. For sure, it matters. Yeah. Okay. So the premise matter. of this segment name is people who have written books from prison. And the segment name, if you're ready for it, uh-huh. hey, Nick, hear it. Let me just say this. You've built this up so much. If yeah. it's not an absolute bombshell, right? You're going to lose. Gonna Especially lose because the whole delivery is just the name. Like you don't know what it looks like. It's you're just, just like, the I name. Have the there best is. Name. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. You ready? <laughs> Pros and cons. It's good. Did you guys hear it? Do you need me to yeah, spell it? I, I, we heard it. Nick, I think it paid off. Like, I because think pros, yep. those are basically like sentences. And cons, convicts. Are convicts. Convicts, yeah. They're all right. prisoners. Right. Uh-huh. Guilty prisoners. <laughs> I, I think it's a great name. I'm a little bit concerned mm. that we're going to tap this well dry pretty quickly. Really? Right. No. A lot of people writing from prison. Martin Luther King. Yeah, but most of them are writing like crazy letters about how I'm going to sniff your soul or something. <laughs> right. Not not a lot of them are writing like good good works of literature that are published. Well, it's not a weekly segment. Okay. Fine. Most right. of our segments Pros are not cons. weekly. We'll take a we'll take a note. Did you guys know? Do you guys know a guy a, a, a little man I like to call John Hinckley Jr. Mm, is that the assassin? Sounds he like a serial Ronald, killer. Ronald Reagan, I think. Yeah. Or oh. Somebody. Okay. Or John Lennon. Anyway, do you I have think a story it was, about yeah. So he recently yeah. got out of prison, and oh. he's kind of been uh, a cause celebre. I don't know how to pronounce that word uh, phrase. Um, but he's on Twitter, and he wow. is, he's <laughs> been tweeting. He's been tweeting people asking them to join his band. Oh no! This is great. I bet he's going to have a book in no time. John Hinckley sure. Jr. Yeah, uh, tried attempted to assassinate President Reagan. Yep. Do you think you should go to prison for longer for attempting to assassinate Reagan and failing? Mm-hmm. 
or successfully assassinated John Lennon. Uh-huh. Well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call it, strongly podcast, where every week we pick a theme, and Ian and Joe, two high school English teachers, bring book recommendations. And of course, just to upset one of them, we pick a winner. And uh, we have some show rules to keep us on track. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers today, gentlemen. Rule number two, omit needless words, Joseph. And rule number three, only winning matters today, okay? Only okay. winning matters, okay. omit needless words. Just like words. in spying, only winning matters. That's true. Not about, not about how you do it. It's not. It's about whether you get them results. What are we going to learn about spies today? Mm. I've got some. I've got some info about spycraft. Uh, like on your computer. It's like World mm, of. Like it's spyware? like World of Warcraft, but it's with spies. Ian's actually talking through his shoe right now. I don't know how he's doing this. Yeah, his microphone I'm, is I'm recording from an undisclosed location, so I don't get that at all. It's a reference to get smart. Mm-hmm, where he had a shoe telephone. Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds to tell me about Ronald Reagan? <laughs> well, I think I've talked <laughs> And don't forget to give us a, an update on uh, Adolf Hitler's kind of situation. In the midst of- I do actually have some Adolf Hitler stuff this week. <laughs> um, 1939, as the armies of Europe mobilized for war, the British Secret Services undertook operations to impede the exportation of Romanian oil to Germany. They failed. Then, in 1940, they tried again. This book follows a Russian writer and emigre as he shuffled to the outskirts of Europe in the uncertain days leading up to World War II. He has no family, no country, no attachments. He has nothing left in the world but a vague feeling that he can do something in the fight against fascism. That's nice. Pretty I'm happy good. for him. Sounds yeah, they're trying, to, they're trying to stop oil to Germany. Blood of victory. Allen first. Because is, okay. oil is the blood of victory. Right. right. I was like, that's say, the idea. Like, you I was need ask, oil. They talk oil. about oil as black gold. Mm-hmm. So just another one of those classic moments right there. Oh, like the Beverly Hillbillies. Did you know that was actually based on a true story? Really? Tell me about it. So there were these people, these hillbillies, and yeah. they were went to move to... <laughs> You had nothing. You <laughs> had nothing. Shot to the ground. That, see, that, that little bit would have gone a lot better if I had ever seen a single episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah, or, knew. or if you had anything prepared for that joke. It was just a thing that came out of your head. Ian, it was just you have 30 seconds to tell us things that are coming out of your Imagine, head. Imagine, if you will, an old, tired spy. His name is Lemus. He has failed. Aww. His network of informants in East Berlin have been killed Lemus goes back to London expecting to be put out to pasture, but instead he gets one more job. Revenge on the East German ex-Nazi spymaster who wiped out Lemus's old network. Of course he takes the job, but spying is a nasty, complex business, and Lemus gradually discovers that the revenge mission is something much worse. I brought the spy who came in from the cold. Pretty good. All right. I mean, neither one of these sounds super great. You shut your mouth. They're amazing. Really? Listen, Nick, Are they? we're not spoiling it, okay? I think the spy genre is a genre which you definitely shouldn't spoil. Romance? Oh. <laughs> like, romance? Absolutely. Romance? Yeah, they get together at the end. Duh. Yeah, that's the whole but, point. Like, spy books, if I told you what happened at the end of this book, yeah. A, I wouldn't do justice to it, and B, it would kind of defeat the entire purpose of the book. It would just deflate it. I mean, you could say that about many things, but boy, but like the the thing about the spy book is like there's tension the whole yeah. time. Like yeah. every scene is dangerous and fraught. So if you know how it turns out, it really puts a pin in that balloon. So Nick, if you want spoilers, you can just I didn't say anything about Nick, spoilers. If you want spoilers, go <laughs> I didn't to a bring that podcast. topic up at all. You know, I just think that, you know, I feel like spy books never deliver. 
Like it's always like, and then that guy did it. What do you want them? It's to like, do? all right. What do you want them to deliver? Um, like I'd like them to deliver like some characters that we actually care about, without <laughs> escalating to like some global dynamic issue. Okay, but that's spies. So like, you want I mean, a, you want uh, a personal touch? I want like a good James Bond book, like the promise that they say exists in James Bond books, which is like, ah, I'm a flawed character. Uh, but then they never really do. Do you know right. what I mean? I do. I do. Um, I not to not to kind of pander here. Yeah, no, what fuck else are we got to do? Ian's my, tell us my how author, cool his character is. My author, John, John, uh, John Le Carre, um, great name, wrote a pen name. Yes, a, a cover. He wrote a, an introduction spy? to his to his spy book where he said, basically, the public, I wrote this when the public, he, he was contemporary, con, con, contemporary with Ian Fleming and the James Bond books. He said, I wrote this for a public which was hooked on Bond and desperate for an antidote. Oh. So he kind you of positions. A real spy book is. He, Here's well, a yeah, spy book. Joe, do you have any response? Any quotes? Any, any, any Ian Fleming responses? Any re- yeah, any Ian Fleming responses from your author? The only thing I so I I don't have my author Sounds saying like anything no. explicitly about Ian Fleming. But when I read this book, okay. I was struck by how much it is not a James Bond. Right. Not like it is just Bond. so aggressively not James yeah. Bond. How so? And I think how so? Well, I think that's what you're picking up on, Nick, where you're like, well, I heard both of your synopses there. Like I heard both of your like overviews and they sound like a James Bond book low or, or mm. boring or something like that. And my book is like James Bond books are, are action, 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 yeah. action, action, Glam- right? glamorous locations, beautiful, beautiful women, Italy, um, a lot of murder, a lot right. of torture, like in my book, a lot of my book is spent in not very nice hotel rooms. <laughs> like a lot of my book okay. is spent. Whoa, not here in we go. Now people, we're moving, Joe. Yeah. Joe really <laughs> wants to go first spent here. In just like conversations between people that you have to read between the lines for. Like it is a very right. slow hotel book. rooms, conversations, mm-hmm. any loyalty programs. Any loyalty programs? Yeah, is he signing up for any loyalty programs at these yeah, hotel rooms? Yeah, so um, they, uh, the a good put, chunk of my book takes place in a Hilton, and they do talk extensively about the Hilton, <laughs> the Hilton Rewards Program. program. <laughs> oh, very nice, Joe. Right, there's like points conversions. There's actually a table down, in the Joe. back of my book, <laughs> a table in the back of my book that has like the dollar per points conversions yeah, and that's black nice. right. That's the joke was done like ten seconds ago. Joe, do you want to? Uh, do you want to? Do you want to? Do please, uh, let's do this. That's let's do, do this. Yeah. My book has a super simple premise, and I think it's one of the strengths of the book. Essentially, the Nazis are expanding bad. in Europe. They're bad, right? That's the very first premise. That's the premise. That's kind that's of a premise. Man, I'm sorry to say that's been done before. Let me take note. <laughs> Nazis are bad. Nazis are expanding into Europe, but Nazis need oil if they're going to fight World War II. <laughs> sorry. Mm-hmm. It's a quick because callback. Because they're robots. It's a <laughs> Just a quick callback to several episodes ago when we did Bo Books, the Nazis, this is historical, the Nazis wanted to set up whaling uh, stations in Antarctica so they can get whale oil. Yeah, oil turns out, guys, turns out, um, in case you haven't been paying attention, oil 
pretty big deal. Big deal for the Nazis, big deal today. So they need oil. They get most of their oil from Romania. And the allies are like the early version of what will become. The allies are trying to undermine Romanian oil production or trying to undermine specifically shipments of Romanian oil to Nazi Germany. That is the entire premise of this book. We are trying to stop Romanian oil shipments. Yeah, this does feel very, um, it does resemble our our theme. Uh, was that last week? Boat books? Anti-Nazi books. <laughs> <laughs> Every week is anti-Nazi books. I mean, yeah, this is <laughs> Every uh, just say, hey, uh, uh, Nazi sympathizers, if you're listening. Wow. We're going to go ahead and alienate you right now. This is, uh, has this no is not a, here. this is not one of those. What, I mean, it is. Three white guys talking about uh, old literature, but you might be thinking, wow, they sure talk about Nazis a lot. But we don't like them is the point. No, we're against them. We're against them. It's just that everything comes back to Nazis, doesn't it? So that's the entire premise of my book. The The problem, though, Nick, is that war in Europe has not actually started yet. So you might say like. Why don't the Americans just bomb these Romanian oil fields like come in and save the day? It's because the Americans won't be part of the war for many, many years. Why don't the British do it? Well, it actually turns out it's really like it's really problematic and they're not actually fighting each other yet. Right. There's all sorts of problems. This can't happen. But there is a way that they can destroy this oil field through espionage. Do they turn on the do they like turn on the tap and just let it run? Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like just poke a hole in this in the supply yeah, like line. Poke and just a, like, oh, 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 oh. Right. Dig a big so, tunnel underneath. <laughs> Nick's just moving on. Sluice it <laughs> no, off. this is good. I think I'd like to guess. Okay, mm-hmm. so if I'm a spy, we gotta stop this army. We're and gonna start with the smallest army known to man. One Kay. person. One right? well, man. no, actually. A smallest army known to man would be like an ant. An ant. Ant-Man. Army. An army ant. An army ant. That was the backup name for Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so stupid. I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. to see where this goes, Nick. We have a, a tiny army of one man who is also possibly ant-sized. <laughs> and it's yeah. very Played tiny. by Paul Rudd. Go ahead. Okay, okay. so we got Paul Rudd. <laughs> I'd probably just send in Paul Rudd. Is that what they do in your books, Joe? Yeah, actually, uh, my character's name, I haven't talked about it yet, but it is Paul Rudd. No, my character's name is Sabian, and he is, he's like, he's hes almost the world's most unlikely hero. Um, he is an... He's an ant. <laughs> All right. Guys, I want to talk about my book. <laughs> Joe, nobody cares about your fucking book. What? Oh, man. I want to hear about how, how Sabian... Uh, kills the oil. <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Savion. No, you got, you got it. Savion. Okay. How does he kill the oil? This is going to be impossible to talk about, Nick, because if I, if, if you sat and guessed and we played the guessing game and I was like, getting hotter, getting colder, um, getting oilier, it would, getting oilier, it would instantly ruin any payoff in this book. Like mm. if you had a hint of how this happened, my book has an incredibly exciting climax, like this crazy climax that's like, like, like stop saying the, that word. The, this crazy um, uh, high high point of the action. There's a new rule: you're not longer allowed to say climax on this show ever again. <laughs> My book has a crazy high point of the action with guns and cars and all sorts of very exciting things. That happens in the last 
chapter of my 288 page book. Ooh. Most of my book is 288. Very, wow, that's short. Very slow burn to set up that dramatic yeah. high point. Hilton rewards. It is, yeah, like you gotta you gotta earn the rewards before they pay off at the end. Like that is <laughs> most of my book. <laughs> Like a lot of writers, um, Alan first started in advertising. He was an ad man. Today, he's considered the, uh, like a lot of people talk about him as like the master of the historic spy novel, the master of the historical spy novel, where he takes a place in history, takes maybe real life events and kind of says, what if? But he also wrote for magazines on the side. And at a certain point, I always wonder how people get jobs like this. Esquire magazine sent him on a travel writing job to to go up and down the Danube River. And Alan first talks about how he was 24 years old. He was on this travel job for for Esquire magazine writing this piece for them about like 11 days on the Danube. And at one point he was off to the side. He had a picnic. He was laying in the grass, looking out at the river, and he could see all this grass between him. And it dawned on him that Europe is so small and so contested over and has such a long history that pretty much every inch of the Danube, uh, like the land around the Danube is probably soaked with blood. Like he was looking at it and being like, oh, there was for sure a battle here. Yeah, lots going on here in Europe. (laughs) And that moment, like that realization kicked off his not like he started writing historic novels about Europe, specifically historic spy novels about Europe, where like these countries were sneaking around. They sometimes call it like the space between the wars his books take place in. Right. Like we're all this political the preamble the preamble to world war ii or you know the the afterthought of post amble the post the post amble good so that's where all of his books came from he ended up writing something like 20 books over his career he's still alive i don't know if he's still writing um this book was 2002 and it seems to be pretty well well regarded this book came out in 2002 2002 so was he is he really old how does he know what happened how does he know this seems kind of like maybe it's not weird did he make it up? Book. Like he's just making things up. Like Serbian Ooh. isn't necessarily. Yeah. I really wonder as you're talking about this kind of like the space between the wars. I wonder. So my book is set in the Cold War, and I I wonder whether spy books work better not during wartime. I think they almost have to. Like I think that's like the place where it, it's hard to move. Like obviously, it's hard to move openly against another country if you are not at war with that country. So all of that has to be clandestine. All of it has to be quiet. Um, And that is where, of course, our spies thrive. Makes it easier to spy. Makes it easier to spy. When they don't know you're coming. Well, or... Do you remember when... uh, This is is just a quick aside. Do you remember when Edward Snowden did, like, his (laughs) leaks? (laughs) And right away, like, there was this crazy... Another person who is very much on Twitter. This happens... This happens every once in a while in the news. (laughs) We're like, Edward Snowden, like does these leaks, right? Like everyone's like, Edward Snowden's a whistleblower. Edward Snowden's a hero. Edward Snowden's a traitor, right? Whatever the hot take on Edward Snowden is. But one of the things that the US comes out right away and says is they're like, Edward Snowden is a Russian spy. 
And you, and like the populace looks at it and they're like, that's BS. The U.S. is just hurt because like they had the whistle blown on them for this like shady thing that they were doing. Right. But then Edward Snowden like gets on a plane and he goes to Ecuador and you're like, OK, that's fine. I guess he wants to get out of the country. He feels and then he gets on a plane and goes to Moscow <laughs> and he's been in Moscow for I think since that happened. And you go, wait a second. Is Edward Snowden a Russian spy? That's the whole story. Oh, oh, dang. I thought you were going to tell us. No, I don't know. I don't know. But I do think he still lives Uh, in Moscow. (laughs) This show is about to go viral. If you're listening, Eddie, do please. uh, And Nick, you can go ahead and tag him on the socials in this. Yeah, uh, do please reach out and let us know just kind of once and for all if you're right. A, a spy. Are you a Russian spy is the question. The last thing I have about my author, Alan First, um, Alan First is in a review of this book that I really, really liked from Kirkus. The headline was Alan First will never get a Pulitzer. He's much too readable. But he has his own absolute <laughs> vodka ad. <laughs> so drink up. <laughs> and that is kind of how this book is. Like this book is very readable. It's also very entertaining. Like it reads as light. It's not, it doesn't read as like serious fiction, right? It reads sure. as entertainment. So you said that it's one of those books where not everything is spelled out, where you have to kind of read between the lines. You read the conversation between, mm-hmm. you know, the operative and his informant. And then you read it again because you're like, wait, did what did did it happen? Did what happened? Think yeah. what I did just happened? That's what you, that's what you say to you. That that is. <laughs> that Ian, is are you of, okay? <laughs> well, it's funny because that is the reaction that you have a lot of times when reading this book, or I assume it's like part of the genre, right? Where you have these these conversations where things happen between the lines, and as a reader, you're a little bit off balance. Like you're not totally sure what just happened, or you're not totally I mean, sure if somebody just had a mic drop moment. I would say that that did the bond doesn't like it's, right. it's very part of part of the bond thing. And I think that more sort of those more sort of pulpy spy novels and spy stories are, you know, exactly what's going on because there's a, there's a dude who's actively literally twirling a mustache and he's evil. And we're trying to shoot him <laughs> in the face 48 times until well, he's and this dead. Is, and this is not that like, this is a book that takes some, it takes some reading to figure out, right? Like it doesn't tell you what's going on. You have to figure out what's going on. Um, but there's it can't actually be that much because it's only like 270 pages. Well, that's, gotta, that's enough. It's got to go pretty quick. Yeah, it goes relatively quickly. Yeah, it does go relatively quickly um, for a book that is a slow burn. This book feels when you are hanging out with this main character, it feels sneaky feels dangerous. Um, The world feels like a place that is not particularly hospitable to him. And being a spy in this book, and I suspect being a spy in real life, is not sexy or glamorous. Like, it is Um. dangerous and dirty and hard, and you don't know who you can trust and who you can't. Joe, do you feel like, like all of these books, all of these, like this book... And like maybe other spy because it says I'm, I'm hearing a lot of similarities to mine just sort of exist in in conversation in well, actually with the bond, like the bond I, vibe, not necessarily vi- not necessarily bond itself, but just the whole kind of the, the image of the spy as glamorous, as mm-hmm. sexy, as uh, thrilling, daring adventures, um, just like a, a lot of a lot of 
Well, is it commentary? Well, I I think it has to. Like, I think when I was reading this book, and I don't have a lot of experience with the spy genre outside of James Bond, when I was reading this book, it is impossible not to contrast it, to to contrast it to Bond. Like, it's impossible because it's so unlike those books. And when most people, I think, think of spy books, think of like the spy genre, Bond is what comes to mind. Like Bond has become synonymous with spy. So when you read this, you're like, oh, this is not sexy. This is not glamorous. This is dirty and dangerous. And this is like when when I read James Bond, I want to be James Bond. When I read this book, I absolutely do not want to be this guy. This guy's life is terrible. (laughs) Whose whose perspective is your book from? Is it from the, like, are you in the mind of the spy or like, do you know what the spy knows? Yep. You, you, you know what the spy knows. And crucially, you don't, you don't know what he doesn't know, including things like, Hey, that woman that I've been palling around Europe with for the past two weeks. Uh, I wonder if I can actually trust her. You know, like, I wonder if she's actually on my side. And it seems like she is. So this is as close as I I could ever be to feeling like a spy. I I do think this book will make you feel like a spy. And it also (laughs) is not going to be great. (laughs) It's going to make you feel like a spy and then make you realize I don't want to do this ever again. He does a great job of very economically setting a scene. And the way that he does it, maybe it's part of the genre. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But the way that he does it is every time you're in a new scene, he just gives you evocative details about that scene in a paragraph, right? So he'll give you like a paragraph of short little snippets of things that are in the room. Um, Can I break one off for you here? It feels like a tease. So yeah, I'd love to hear some. Downstairs, a table in the green salon, Turkish coffee and little cups without handles, cream cakes, toast with butter, Moldavian roll. Outside, beyond the mirror walls, twilight on a winter afternoon. That, some version of that paragraph occurs 200 times in my book it reminds me of of when you're reading like a play um especially like a play written more recently you've got Mm -hmm. the stage directions george bernard shaw was famous for this he wrote it's if you look at like the 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 page of a play it's got like the italics and it's in brackets Mm -hmm. usually and, and it's describing what the place looks like or or how the people are entering so you could build a set yeah, so so you, so Shaw <laughs> yeah. got such like wrote such detailed stage directions. They're like pages and pages mm-hmm. of this before the play actually starts. Other playwrights are less, but the idea is it's like it's like a, or or in a film script like exterior night, yep. um, the sun has begun to set or something like that. Yeah, that's um, exactly it, like it's, and- it's scene setting and it's it's almost sort of telegraphic. It doesn't need to be flowery because it gives you what you need to know. Right. Like the, the word that kept coming to mind. You, it's funny. You talk about George Bernard Shaw. I thought about Tennessee Williams doing the exact same thing. Yes. Right? Where yeah. you get oh my goodness. Pages so of stage directions coming through. Um, but actually, every time I got to one of these, I couldn't help but think of like a law and order episode where like you go to an overview of the shot and then like the little letters go against the bottom of the screen. Like, right. So it's like New York warehouse, right? Right. Whatever it is. Um, That's what it felt like every time he came into one of these. And one of the things that killed me is when I read um, that Esquire magazine article, that Blue Danube Esquire magazine article, even in 1984, Alan First was writing like this in that article. So like I have one here. It's not a spy thing. It's not a spy thing. I think it's an Alan First (laughs) thing. So this is from that other article. It's Sunrise, the Upper Deck, 
The dawn moon is a sickle slice to the northeast, glittering just above the southern horizon, the morning star. If you drew them together, they'd form the image on the Turkish flag. With Turkey to the south, Russia to the north, we're crossing the longitude of conquerors. Which is a wild thing to write in a travel article, <laughs> I think. Like, that sounds like a spy book. Longitude of Conquerors sounds like a metal band. Longitude right? of Conquerors also sounds like the name of a spy novel. <laughs> so I have nothing else to say about this book. I enjoyed reading it. I don't think I'm going to rush to pick up another spy book. It did not make <laughs> me feel warm and fuzzy. I thought it was like interesting and cool. But I think if I want to read another spy book, I'll probably pick up a James Bond book. <laughs> One of my delights in this podcast has been watching Joe be kind of forced, dragged, kicking and screaming to various genres that he right. doesn't know or care about. Like, remember when he, we we read um, mystery books and he's like, fine, I'll read Drive Your Black over the Kings of the yeah, novels. the bones of the dead. And he, he finished. He was like, "Well, that was as far as mysteries go. That was certainly one of them." Moving <laughs> on. I remember that book pretty fondly. So I actually, I do really like that this book, that this podcast makes me read books I normally want, but sometimes they just don't quite land for me. And I think this was probably a really well done piece, right? A really well done spy book. But I don't know, Nick. It, it was okay. <laughs> An honest review. I'm not, I don't just come out here week, week after week and lie to yeah. you like we're not Ian trying to. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week I'm going to talk to you about um, a book called "The Spy Who Came In from the Cold." I had read this once a long, long time ago, and I I'm so thankful that it was so long ago because. Um, I had forgotten what happens, which is, as we discussed, <laughs> essential. Yeah, I that think. always makes mystery a little bit better, doesn't it? When you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, it's interesting. It's interesting. So, Joe, your your author first was kind of active 80s through the present. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Present ish. He's, present -ish. He's, 80, he's like 84 years old. OK, I, I, give the guy a break. Let him retire again. Okay. Okay. Well, let him retire. My, my, uh, novel was kind of my, my author and, and my novel was, it's kind of the, the previous generation. So oh. as I mentioned, uh, this was written around the same time, um, as the bond bond books. So, um, these, this book was written in 1933. Um, the, uh, Jean Le Carre, uh, the, uh, his real name was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow his cover right now. His mm -hmm. real name was David Cornwell. David Cornwell. He's good as dead. He, well, he is dead. He died in 2020 after a fall in his home at the age of 89. So. Oh, they say that the most dangerous thing in your house oh, that's is That's what they ladder. want you to think. Yeah, that's what they want. Maybe he's... Anyway, um, he, uh, he worked for, like Ian Fleming, he worked for the British um, Intelligence Service, um, MI5 and MI6. And so uh, he kind of has that that... Wow. Uh, legitimacy or yeah. Oh, interesting. There, there's the claim of that. So his, his intro, he, he writes this, he writes this, um, uh, 50 years after the novel came out, uh, he wrote this 50 years later, kind of retrospective. And he talks in this introduction. It's a great, it's a great introduction. He talks about kind of when he wrote it, people were hungry for this sort of authenticity. And he has a really cool thing uh, to say about that, which I don't really have time to, to read you, but, um, uh, he, has the spy experience. And so, yes, this is a bit less escapist than Bond. He's rooted it in what he knew, people he saw, 
um, he has this great kind of uh, description of how uh, one day he was in an airport and oh, let me just let me just get this. Hang on. I want to get it right because it's so, so good. He, he's describing how he came up with his main character, who is this sort of burned out, old, tired spy. I thought you were going to read us some sort of like airline travel rewards points. No, too. no, so no travel gonna... rewards points here. Okay. He says. Um, I don't associate the book with anything that ever happened to me, save for one wordless encounter at London airport when a worn out middle-aged military kind of man in a stained raincoat slammed a handful of mixed foreign change onto the bar and in a gritty Irish accent ordered himself as much scotch as it would buy. (laughs) In that moment, Alec Lemus was born, his main character. So he's... (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I love that. I love like you see a guy one time do one mm-hmm. thing. Yep. And he's obviously uh, uh, Cornwell Lake Array is, is, a, is a keen observer. He sees this guy, a gritty Irish accent, military looking stained raincoat, has this handful of mixed foreign change. And he slams it on the bar and says, give me as much scotch as this will buy. That's beautiful. That's such an evocative detail. Like it's just such a thing that would stick with you for years and years. Yeah. Yep. Um, I always remember I, I, I bartended for many, many years. And one time a guy came in and I forget what the circumstance was, but he did something similar, not with mixed change, which is so much cooler, but he says, I would like this type of beer. Like I would like a, a, a Budweiser in the biggest container that you have. He said, if that's a mug, great. If that's a pitcher, great. But I've always loved that request. I would like this beer in the biggest container that you have. That's a Wisconsin story. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> okay. So this guy's got the real chops. Yeah. And so, so Move he was publishing, Joe. he was publishing <laughs> while <laughs> he was publishing while he was still a member of MI5 and MI6. While he was still killing people. Oh, that feels <laughs> well, like it's going to blow his cover. Like, he, no, he you can't he, publish he was while not. you're a spy. Well, it's a and fake name, Joe. This. This, is, this is why he, this is in part why he writes under the, he, he, he wrote three books. This is the third book. Um, three books while he was still working for, for the, the intelligence service. And each of those books, they had to vet the intelligence agencies had to vet to make sure that he wasn't spilling any beans. And um, the third book took them a long time, but then finally they let it through. Um, It was so successful. He was able to quit his spying job because he didn't want to turn into that dude who Mm -hmm. walks into the bar in London and asks for as much scotch as this change will buy. Like he didn't want to kind of burn out like that. Okay, I'm really excited by Ian's book here because I I thought I had never heard of John Licare, right? But when you said it just now, I remember that I read an interview with his editor of all people okay. recently, okay. right? Um, it, a Paris Review interview. And his editor talks about how amazing this guy was to work with. So Ian, here you go. Mm. I've got something for you. He says, Licare is unbelievably sensitive to editorial suggestion because his ear is so good and his imagination so fertile, or maybe his life experience so fertile. Um, he'll take the slightest hint from me and he'll come back with 30 extraordinary new pages, which I thought was a really, really nice thing to say. It's cool. And then Licare responds in that same interview. It's kind of like this conversation interview. And he says, um, I've never taken a suggestion of Bob's. I've never regretted taking a suggestion of Bob's. Bob pointed out the places where he felt like my fiction became so autobiographical that it became embarrassing. Ah. He says, <laughs> he says, what we left on the cutting room floor still makes me blush. I thought that was such a cool exchange. I'm so excited to, to hear about Lake Ray now. Yeah. 
Nick, Nick, yeah. I liked my book. I think you should read Ian's book. I think Don McRae sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, he comes across as really, really smart. I'm, I'm trying a new approach this week where I'm just going to tell you to Reverse read Ian's psychology. book. psychology. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not really going to tell you guys about what happens in this book, really. Oh, I told you. I'd like to hear I, a little. Okay. Well, so, <laughs> Too bad, so there's, Nick. There's, there's, a, there's a guy. There's a bad guy. He used to be a Nazi. He... Uh, now works for the East. This is during the Cold War, 50s and 60s. He now works for the East German Secret Service. Um, so he, I mean, he's a, he's ex-Nazi. He's an ex-Hitler youth. He's a bad dude. And he is a killer. He's killed our main character's entire network of East German informants. Wow. Good, he's good at it. The whole network? Yeah, like like dozens of dozens of people just informants and runners and and um connections just all not not kind of rolled up and, and taken away put in prison killed murdered and the book opens with the very dramatic attempt of the last member the highest member of this network his attempt to escape over the recently constructed berlin wall and it's not a spoiler to say it fails because that's kind of the one of the inciting incidents for the whole thing um, but it's really, really kind of dramatic and intense. And the wall is presented as this, this, this kind of unholy, monstrous thing, barbed wire and, and concrete block. It's really, it's really, uh, uh, really kind of well drawn. Um, and clearly the sort of thing that like Lake Carré would have had to have had some experience with it. Um, there, there's, there is sort of some of the truth of autobiography there. So our main character, Lemus, his network has been rolled up, killed, murdered by this bad dude, this ex-Nazi. And he goes back to England and in England, his boss says, how would you like to go deep undercover and take down the bad dude, Munt? His name is Munt. How would oh, you like to cool take that. down Munt? It's quite the villain. He is. He is a really, he's a really good villain. And of course, it's a good start to a villain. Of course, mm-hmm. Lehman says, yeah, Lemus says, yeah, I would love to. And he even kind of like floats the possibility of like, I would even murder him if I could, because mm-hmm. he hates this guy. One he could hope. hates this guy. And then the rest of the novel is the developing plan, the developing kind of plot to take care of, discredit, overthrow the threat in um, in, uh, East German intelligence. Uh, and this is where I'm going to stop because, because things kind of ramify. I, I mentioned in my, my 32nd plot that it's not as simple. It's not as simple as just go kill this guy. There are wheels within wheels and Lemus kind of discovers that maybe he's being played him. He himself is being played a bit that, um, there are, there are larger forces at play. Mm. He is a, he is not, he thinks like he he initially thinks he's just out there trying to take this guy down, but it becomes clear that he is also a pawn in a larger game. And that's that's really where I'm going to stop, because if I tell you more, I will spoil it. But the, the beauty of this is we get the whole story through Lemus's eyes almost entirely. There are a couple of couple of point of view chapters from his love interest, but for the most part, it's Lemus and we get to know him. He is a very interesting guy. He is like he's fairly attractive but he's not like super hot he's young he's he's he's, uh, capable but he's not like a young murdering machine with sinews of steel like um he gets smacked around he gets beaten down he's very like kind of kind of cynical um because obviously he's been through a lot and the biggest thing is that he's not sure he believes in what they're doing anymore Joe, Ian's book kind of sounds more like James Bond, doesn't it? 
like it does, really it does. It bad like, villain. Uh huh. Probably putting his pinky finger up right. to his mouth consistently throughout the book. Brunt. Punt. What's his name? Munt. M U N D T. It does sound, yeah, like the villain in my book is a little more opaque. It sounds a little heavy handed, Ian's book. How heavy are your hands, Ian? Good question. Like I say, like I say, it's it's hard to talk about this without spoiling it because because the sort of the sort of the 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 big question of this novel is the moral one. It's okay, okay. Let me let me start with Bond and then we'll move to the, the moral question, okay? Because that's that's kind of that's that's the 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 title and that's that's the key to understanding this novel. So um as I mentioned, uh Le Carre says he wrote for a public uh, addicted to Bond and desperate for an antidote. I'm gonna posit James Bond as morally simple. James yeah. Bond's morals are very like straightforward. James Bond, good. He fight bad guy. He shoot mm-hmm. and kill bad guy 79 times. He yeah. get girl. This also good. End. Yeah, there, yeah, there's not a lot of gray area in James Bond, is there? Right? Like there's black and white and red. The, the blood. The yeah. blood is red. Right, yeah, yes. thank you. Or, or also communisms, too, <laughs> is the other option. Uh, this novel doesn't give you that. You think, oh, okay, Lemus is good and Munt is bad. Cool. But as the novel progresses, we see Lemus doing a bunch of kind of morally suspect things himself. We ask, we we we're, we start to wonder if if um, Munt is um, kind of the the bad guy that he's made out to be. I mean, he's bad, but it's not that simple. This book, and, and I think Lecaré's work in general, asks: Is the spy is a spy good if he's for instance, morally responsible for endangering his informants. If he is, if he's putting his informants in danger, is that good? Alternatively, is the bad guy, is the antagonist, morally bad if he believes that what he's doing is right? So one of the main characters, one of the other main characters, um, is a, a character named Fiedler, and Fiedler is an ideologue. He believes. <laughs> no, yeah, not that. <laughs> Ian, you're so uh, serious about this book. Isn't it just a stupid spy book? It's really not. You're no, like this really is, intense ooh, about this. This is people have people have called this the the like the best spy novel ever written. Because who, who wow, said this? It's pretty good. Was it Ian? <laughs> um, do you want me to go to the Barack yeah, to to Obama? The, probably. <laughs> it's <laughs> the kind of thing obama would say honestly okay here's some here's some praise for uh the spy who came in for the cold superbly constructed with an atmosphere of chilly hell jb Priestley. lake Carre is simply the world's greatest fictional spy master newsweek he is one of the half dozen best novelists now working in english chicago sometimes a topical and terrible story he can communicate emotion from sweating fear to despairing love with terse and compassionate conviction above all he can tell a tale Formidable equipment for a rare and disturbing writer. The Sunday Times UK. These are all five star reviews. If you want to counter with some one stars, that's fine. But like this is one of those novels. I mean, prepare anything. (laughs) This is one of those novels that um, he was. It was so successful that he was able to quit his job at intelligence. Like this was the thing that pulled him out of kind of an office job, a day to day work in the bureaucracy of spy, the spy world and let him be a writer. Well, and I really do love that. Like, I think that's the dream for all the writers is like, I want to make enough money from my writing to quit my day job. But normally the day job that they're quitting is like, I write copy for an ad agency. Right. Right. <laughs> this guy's like, oh, no, I actually work in the intelligence like industry. It might be bureaucracy, but he's he's gradually discovering that the spy game is just the worst. Yeah. Like he's not glamorizing this at all. 
he's writing for a public that is eager for more spy stuff, but he's not like, here's how cool it is. He's like, does this in fact sap your soul? So I'm going to talk about the, the, the top, the title now for a, a, a little moment, mm-hmm. the spy who came in from the cold. It's a really good title. Like, yeah, like, can I makes, just say it's a really good title? You can Joe. Yeah. Okay. It makes you idea. think it makes you kind of like curious. It draws you in. So this coming in from the cold is a central concept in this story. Um, obviously cause it's the title. Yeah. Um, you got kind of like the cold war, like coming in from the cold. Um, a spy who comes in from the cold is one who kind of leave, can leave the cold war behind, but that's not the, the main meaning of it during the cold war. As I've mentioned, the Soviet side saw themselves as the good guys. They thought they were moral and the West saw themselves as moral. They thought both sides thought they were the right on the right side of history in this massive grand struggle. And on the way to the kind of achieving their goals, both sides did some pretty dreadful things. And we still see this. Like you talk about Guantanamo Bay. Um, President Biden recently met with the Saudis who like to murder journalists and restrict human rights and things like one of the things, one of the aspects of statecraft is you do terrible things sometimes in order to achieve your ends. And the claim is always the ends justify the means. What we're going to accomplish by doing these dreadful things will make all uh, the dreadful things themselves. Okay. But this book, this book says maybe the ends don't justify the means. Maybe the means are bringing about a, a, a different end, which is a, a removal of kind of humanity early on in the book. One of the main characters talks about how spies have to live in the cold and living in the cold means you live without sympathy. You are cold to others. You live kind of closed off your whole life. Your whole existence is kind of um, inhibited. And the question is of this book, can someone who is a career spy come in from the cold? Can they return to a place of sympathy? Can they return to a place of caring about their fellow humans as humans, as opposed to as assets? When you deal with informants, right? You think of your, your informants as an asset. You don't think of them primarily as a person. You think of them as a source of information. And so you, you protect them, not because you want them as humans to be happy and healthy and well, successful. You protect them because you want them to keep giving you information about nuclear secrets or whatever it is. And so the question that the book keeps asking is, can a spy come in from the cold? Can you come in from the cold? Can you stop being a spy? Can you return to this human sympathy? Um, Does espionage just completely dehumanize you where you have to choose eventually? Like I am now a spy. I can't go back. Um, And I think, I don't think it's a spoiler since the title says the spy does come in from the cold. Mm -hmm. He does. He does. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably um, a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah. it's it's right there in the title. It's not it's not the spy who might or might not come in from the cold. You'll have to read to the end <laughs> You'll to, have find to, out. Read to find out. Like the the whole point of this book is we know this character is going to come in from the cold. We just can't see how it's going to get there. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think that's it's it's a beautiful it, it's it's right. I mean, Joe keeps Joe always says this book is so up my alley. It's disgusting. Well, I, I don't know if I always say that, but you say that <laughs> yes. frequently. He didn't say that uh-huh. in his last book. The books that are up my alley are the ones that are page turners like this, but also really pose a difficult question that's kind of hard to hard to answer. He's written um, a lot of his books. I shouldn't say a lot, but um, his books have become movies. Uh, the Constant Gardener, I believe, is a movie. Nick Tinker, yep. Taylor, Soldier, Spy. That's for sure a movie. It's been a movie twice. Yep. That's pretty good. A lot of books aren't even a movie once. <laughs> 
Most, yeah. most things aren't a movie once. M- most things aren't a movie once. Uh, well, Ian's book obviously sounds much better. Joe, you lose. <laughs> Sorry, Alan, first. I'm not sure I really understand the premise of either book too much beyond um, the limits of not spoiling them. But Ian seems to be very serious about his book. So I, I, I'm convinced <laughs> that it's probably better. <laughs> Nick, there was, there was a really good movie made about two years after this book came out starring Richard Burton, who went on to play Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to to get this story without reading the book, I would strongly recommend that. <laughs> now we're, uh, Ian, you already won. Okay. <laughs> Just relax. All right. Congratulations, John Le Carre. Congratulations, whatever your dorky real name is. And congratulations, <laughs> Ian DeYoung. Um, Litheads, if you want to support the show or recommend a theme, you can head on over to youdon'tknowlitpodcast.com. Uh, there you'll have a chance to request uh, or suggest suggest a theme request a sticker ingest a meal um digest a reader no that is happening (laughs) we are we are sending out we are sending out uh hello fresh boxes to you literary themes they come to us first and then we keep them oh they're they're expired they're absolutely expired definitely but like the onions some of that stuff is still good like there's uh, some nuts in there you can eat Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sweet. All right. So readers head on over to you don't know lit podcast.com. Suggest a theme. If you don't care about what we talk about, you can head on over to your podcast player of choice and uh, rate review five star, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like I'm missing something. Oh, we're on social media. Um, we post a bunch of different places. Uh, follow us there. And congratulations, Ian and John Le Carre. I'm going to read you a passage because I don't, I really don't want to, a lot of the novels kind of kind of knotted up together and I don't, I don't want to just pull a section out. I'm going to read you a passage from uh, the end of his introduction. So he wrote, writes this 50 years after um, the novel was published and he's kind of reflecting on the novel in the world and the process of it and so on and so forth. And I want you to remember some of the stuff that Joe is bringing about the, the interview um, and how kind of thoughtful he is and how intelligent. He's also a bit of a, a, a grump, a grouch, which I think is <laughs> awesome. He's he's I mean, he was he was 90, almost 90 when he died and he was had seen a lot of the world and a bit of a cynic, perhaps, but uh, definitely a grouch. So here's what he says. This is this is how he ends uh, his introduction. And he's kind of talking about how uh, well, I'll, I'll let it stand for itself. Never mind. The novel's merit then or its offense, depending where you stood, was not that it was authentic, but that it was credible. The bad dream of the novel turned out to be one that a lot of people in the world were sharing, since it asked the same old question that we are asking ourselves 50 years later. How far can we go in rightful defense of our Western values without abandoning them along the way? My fictional chief of the British service, I called him Control, had no doubt of the answer. He said, You can't be less ruthless than the opposition simply because your government's policy is benevolent, can you now? Today, the same man with better teeth and hair and a much smarter suit can be heard explaining away the catastrophic illegal war in Iraq, or justifying medieval torture techniques as the preferred means of interrogation in the 21st century, or defending the inalienable right of closet psychopaths to bear semi-automatic weapons, and the use of unmanned drones as a risk-free method of assassinating one's perceived enemies and anyone who had the bad luck to be standing near them. 
or as a loyal servant of his corporation, assuring us that smoking is harmless to the health of the third world, and great banks are there to serve the public. What have I learned over the last 50 years? Come to think of it, not much. Just that the morals of the secret world are very much like our own. Apparently, Le Carre coined the espionage terms mole and honey trap. Those are, those are big ones. crazy. Those are, yeah, those are mole. Mole. Dang. M-O-L-E. Wow. That's, that's like incredible. I love him. He's great. 